to Acts chapter 21. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts together, and we come to chapter 21. And if you're with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you wave, and they'll spot you, and they'll put a Bible into your hand. It'll be marked to our passage for your ease. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you uh, today. Also, the reminder that the second Sunday night of each month, uh, the focus of our service is the Lord's Supper. And so that will be tonight. And I think the Lord has some very special things uh, prepared for tonight. Uh, you will want to be here to enjoy that time uh, with the Lord for us as a church body together. And maybe it's been a while since you as a Christian have partaken of communion. And it is a commandment. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And if it's been a while, come on out tonight and enjoy communion. Those of us, you who are regulars all the time, will look forward to seeing you as well. Acts chapter 21, verse 15. And after those days, Luke writes, we, that is Paul and those who were traveling with him, we went up to Jerusalem, and also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us uh, to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear what, that you have come, and therefore do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that these things of which, you, uh, of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you keep yourself, that you yourself rather, also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage and it's one of those passages that we are prone to in the reading of the book of Acts to just simply uh, go over as kind of a historical fact and miss the great lesson and lessons that are found in it. And we pray that you would help us to unpack the passage today, to learn what it has to say for us, Lord, and putting all of the pieces of Acts together, but also the thing that you want to speak to us from your throne concerning this passage and our relationship with you 
and our relationship with the world and our relationship with the body of Christ. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit through your word in each one of our lives this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul formally concludes his third missionary journey by arriving, as we read here, into the city of Jerusalem in verses 15 and 16. He makes the journey from the seaside city of coastal city of Caesarea that exists still in uh, Israel today and makes the 64-mile journey overland from that city uh, to the city of Jerusalem. Paul, as he makes his way to Jerusalem, is accompanied by uh, the Gentile Christians who are traveling with him with the offering from the various Gentile-dominated churches, as well as with Luke and Silas. And also, he travels with a group of Christians from the city of Caesarea that want to make the trip with him, as well as a man by the name of Nason. Nason is described as being kind of an early convert or an early uh, convert to Christianity. He is a Jew raised in uh, Cyprus for some part of his life, maybe all of his life. And uh, so he probably came to know the gospel. We can't be for sure under the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost many years earlier, but perhaps as a result of that sermon and certainly associated with the early evangelism of Jerusalem with the gospel. Because he did spend part of his life, maybe all of his life growing up before coming to Jerusalem in Cyprus, he was a Jew that would be referred to as a Hellenistic Jew, uh, a Jew who is a Jew, obviously, but raised and informed and fashioned and familiar with Greek culture. This is significant that Nason is going to offer his home for Paul and his entourage to uh, stay in during their time in Jerusalem, because as you might imagine, those of you who are familiar with the story, not everyone in Jerusalem at this point is that excited about Paul, and uh, he might not have gotten a lot of uh, homes opened up to him among the Jews uh, to spend, you know, to host him, uh, even among the Christians that were Jews. And certainly it would have been even more difficult uh, with the fact that he's got this entourage of Gentiles. So it says a lot about Nason uh, and who he is and how he sees the world and the body of Christ and Paul and so forth that he opens his own home up to Paul and those traveling with him. Now, getting a room in Jerusalem at this particular time of this event was a difficult thing. The Jews have three great uh, feasts that constitute uh, their religious calendar, and one of them is the Feast of Pentecost. And it's, it's this time that Paul is coming to Jerusalem to celebrate it. When the city of Jerusalem would swell many times, it's... Uh, regular size as pilgrims came to worship the Lord 
on the Feast of Pentecost from all over the world. And so Nason opens his home up to them. We're told further in verse 17 that Paul was warmly received by the Christians there when he arrived. And then the following day, in verse 18, we're told that Paul met with James, who is the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, and the writer of the book of James. And it's interesting to realize, as we're studying this, that the book of James had already been written and was uh, well in circulation at this point in time. And so Paul meets with James as well as the other elders of the church there in Jerusalem. During the meeting, we're told that Paul provided them with a report of all that God was doing uh, through his ministry among the Gentiles. And two words are uh, significant there as it speaks about Paul speaking to them in detail, and it literally means one item after another. They're not rushing Paul to rush through kind of a missionary report, and their eyes are glazing over, and they've got a limited attention span. They're excited to hear about what God is doing through Paul's life. And they listen to all that he has to say. They listen to every detail, not only of his third missionary journey, but the idea of is of the two missionary journeys previously, as he spoke about Salamis, Paphos, Perga, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, all of these cities that we've studied as we've studied his missionary journeys. Imagine him telling all of the events that were happening in those cities. And then to speak of all of the imprisonments and the persecutions and the stonings and the beatings, his message on Mars Hill, uh, the miracles that were occurring through his life, the multitude of people that were being uh, saved. And of course, as we know the Apostle Paul, he's not declaring any of this to them in an attempt to get them to be impressed with him uh, personally. But Paul speaks these things to them with a de very deliberate focus. But he is speaking it to them in order that they would be deeply impacted by the greatness of God's love for the Gentiles and also uh, that they would also be impacted by the, the love that God has for the souls of Gentiles, the fact that God wanted to save Gentiles every bit as much as He wants to save Jews, and that He loves Gentiles every bit as much as He loves Jews. This was a hard thing for Jews in the first century uh, to accept. Their response to the report is told us there in the opening part of verse 20, they glorified the Lord for all that He was doing through the Apostle Paul among the Gentiles. And this isn't grudging on their part. What would be the Christian thing to do? We don't want to look petty. We don't want to look sectarian. And uh, after all, we're leaders in the body of Christ, and so let's uh, feign some kind of excitement about what God is doing among the Gentiles. James and the Jewish leaders within uh, Jerusalem were truly excited to hear about God's love for the Gentiles, the power of the gospel among the Gentile population, and how many were becoming uh, Christians. They got that fact when many of their brethren did not, that God really loved the Gentiles 
and desire their salvation as much as uh, the Jews as well. Now, they run into a sticky problem that they have to inform the Apostle Paul of here at this particular point, and it's, it, we're made aware of it in uh, the latter part of verse 20 through verse 22. So, having been educated by Paul concerning uh, the work of the gospel, the power of the gospel among the Gentiles, the, the Jewish religious leaders, and it's kind of sensitive, you can almost uh, feel a little bit of tension as they know something that Paul doesn't know, but they have to inform him of. And so they proceeded to inform Paul about a complication that they were facing in ministering to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and that complication had to do with the Apostle Paul himself. The problem they were facing and what they wanted Paul to be aware of is that, first of all, there were myriads of Jews who had become Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, that is, that the, just as the gospel was having an impact in a phenomenal way in the Gentile world, they informed him that the gospel is having a phenomenal effect upon Jews within Jerusalem, and thousands of them have become Christians. Uh, the numbers, some of the experts uh, indicate that study these kind of things, they estimate that the church in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians at that time, numbered somewhere between 25 and 50,000 in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. You remember they got a jump start in terms of the salvation of Jews. On the day of Pentecost, Peter got up and he preached. 3,000 were saved with that sermon. His next sermon, uh, at least 2,000 additional were saved, maybe an additional 5,000. We don't know, but it gave a good foundation now for the building of the church within uh, Jewish Jerusalem. Uh, Paul's persecution certainly drove many Christians out of Jerusalem, but the gospels continued to have a great impact until, uh, as James informs him, myriads of Jews have become Christians as well. Paul was informed uh, in verse 20 that these uh, Jewish saints, they remained zealous for the law of Moses. So apparently, they had believed in Jesus as their Messiah, and they had believed on Jesus for salvation based upon simple faith and trust in Him for that salvation, and they had continued to follow the law of Moses, not to earn their salvation, but as an expression for their love for God, not as a means of, of righteousness. And then they also followed the law, no doubt, as a means of maintaining uh, a connection with their Jewish culture and with their Jewish uh, heritage. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But enough to say at the moment that they maintained a very high view of the law of Moses in the Old Testament and a very high view of their Jewish culture and their Jewish heritage. Paul was then informed of a rumor that was circulating concerning him uh, and, and that had circulated very widely in Jerusalem, verse 21. And it was principally this, the idea that when Paul, as he made these missionary journeys, that he was teaching Jews living in Gentile lands that they should forsake 
Moses, that is to forsake the law, uh, observing the law of Moses, that they should cease circumcising their sons and then abandon the Jewish customs or abandon their Jewish uh, heritage. Now, like most rumors, uh, this rumor concerning Paul was absolutely false. What Paul did teach concerning the law of Moses and salvation was this. Number one, that everyone, Jew and Gentile, that we are all saved exactly the same way through putting our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And then number two, that in keeping with the law of Moses, that that the keeping of the law of Moses and circumcision and Jewish traditions and culture, that those things played no part in a person's salvation. Paul wrote in this regard in his first letter to the church at Corinth. And it's important to realize that 1st and 2nd Corinthians, those two letters were already in circulation. They've already been written. And uh, so it would have been very easy to understand Paul's position on these issues rather than believing rumors. There in 1st Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, I'll read it for you. But Paul wrote, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all of the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? That is a Jew. Then let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? That is a Gentile. Then let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. In other words, Paul was declaring you don't have to become a Gentile culturally if you become saved as a Jew, and you don't have to become a Jew culturally if you've been saved as a Gentile. And again, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he encouraged the Gentile believers to be sensitive to the consciences and the scruples of their Jewish brethren in the exercise of their liberty so that they would not offend uh, the weaker uh, brother. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Romans chapter 14 and 15. Again, both books which had been uh, already written by Paul and were in circulation. And so not only did Paul not demand that Jewish Christians uh, who uh, prized uh, their heritage and their customs, that they did not have to give up that heritage and their customs, but he went even further than that, and he besought the Jewish, the Gentile Christians to really use love and tolerance and discernment in the expression of their Christian liberties so as to not stumble these Jewish believers. On a personal level for the Apostle Paul in this regard, so he went to great lengths so that he would not portray himself as anti-law or anti-circumcision. 
Paul, when he began his third missionary journey, you might remember, he came to a city and there was Timothy, who he wanted to have become a part of his missionary journey. Timothy, his parents, his father was a Gentile, his mother was a Jew. And Paul knew that as he continued on this journey, if Timothy was not circumcised, it would really hurt their effectiveness in preaching the gospel to the Jews. And so Paul went so far as to have Timothy circumcised before joining him on the missionary journey as to, in order to avoid this very accusation that was being made against him. All of that is recorded in Acts chapter 16. Now, it is very, very important to understand that in all of this, Paul is writing about Jews and Gentiles who are already saved. These people are already Christians. They've already been born again based solely upon their faith in Jesus Christ for that salvation. So none of this has anything to do with how a person gets saved, but it has to do with how we choose to express our love and worship of God after we're saved within a given culture. A Christian can be circumcised or not be circumcised, can, can, can keep the Sabbath or not keep the Sabbath, can stay connected to the religious culture they get saved in or move on to a different one, and that we are not bound uh, by uh, these things. We have total freedom to do so based upon our own personal uh, convictions related to these issues as long as we realize that doing or not doing these things do not make me righteous before God, as long as we don't make them a source of spiritual pride or begin to look down on other Christians who make a different decision concerning these issues in their own life and in the way that they choose to worship God. We're never to make these things the litmus test for our own spirituality or judge the spirituality of another Christian on the basis of these things, much less to decide that we will fellowship with other Christians or not based upon issues like that. Paul was clear, again in his writings, on this issue. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Paul wrote, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, again this book was already in circulation. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It has nothing to do with a person's salvation, as he goes on to write, but a new creation. We become a Christian by being born again, not by virtue of, you know, what we do or we don't do as Jews and as Gentiles. So here are these leaders in Jerusalem and they wanted to give, and I, I so respect him for it, they wanted to give Paul a heads up concerning uh, the attitude that was there toward him in Jerusalem uh, because they knew this was going to cause some trouble if it didn't get addressed and, and clarified in some way. 
And they'd given this some thought, obviously, because verses 23 to 25, they proposed a solution to the Apostle Paul. And the solution involved four Jewish Christian men who had taken a, a vow, verse 23. And apparently, as we read this, it's clear that the vow that they had taken was what is known in the Old Testament as a Nazarite vow. It's spoken of in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. And the Nazarite vow didn't have anything to do with a person's salvation. It had to do with a person who already knew God and loved God, but they wanted to use this as a means of expressing uh, extraordinary commitment to God, an extraordinary dedication to God. That's what a Nazarite vow was all about. And when a man or a woman took a Nazarite vow under the Old Testament, during the season of that vow, and the vow would be, could, was always at least 30 days, but it could go on for months. And the, the term of the vow of dedication could even go on for years, a lifetime, as we see in uh, Samson's life, and, and really, you, you know, with others, extended period of times. But uh, the, during that period, uh, the Nazarite was not allowed to cut their hair. And because the hair that grew during this period of consecration, it represented their dedication, their consecration to God. So once they terminated uh, the, the length of, of their Nazarite vow, their head would then be shaved. That hair that represented their consecration to God would then be put upon a fire, the fire of the peace offering, and it would be offered as an offering uh, uh, to Him. Uh, and this is what's referred to in verse 24 when Luke declares, and so, so that they may shave their heads. There were also several sacrifices that were involved in uh, this vow of consecration. It was suggested to Paul that, number one, that he would be purified himself. And the idea isn't that he would then take a Nazarite vow because Paul is only going to really be in Jerusalem for a period of about seven days in terms of being free. Uh, a Nazarite vow required at least a 30-day commitment, as I mentioned. And so they call on Paul to purify himself. And this would have been some kind of Jewish ceremonial purification. And they do the same thing even today. They have what are known as mikvahs. And they're like these little baptismals that are in the area of worship of, of the temple or holy places. And the Jew would then go into the mikvah. They would immerse themselves in the water, come out, and it represented their desire uh, to be clean of any defilement from the world now as I come in to worship God here at the temple and it, it, with all of my fullness. And remember, Paul has come out of the Gentile world, and so in the eyes of the Jews, he's quite defiled. And uh, so they said it would be a good idea for you to go through a cleansing ceremony as a part of, of uh, clearing up some of these misconceptions uh, concerning, concerning you. And then it was... Uh, suggested that he pay the expenses of this for the sacrifices, and there were multiple sacrifices involved for each of the four men uh, that were having uh, their heads shaved or taking uh, this vow that Paul would bear uh, that, uh, the, the cost of those sacrifices. 
and the effect that they hoped that this would have upon the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem is that they would know that all of these rumors that were floating around about Paul, uh, not caring about these things, that they were all false, and then number two, that uh, they would realize that Paul also walked orderly and he kept the law. Now, in verse 25, James and the elders were very quick following this proposal to Paul, very quick to offer Paul the reassurance concerning Gentile Christians that nothing would change concerning them. The decision that the Jerusalem Council had made, some of you remember it, all the way back in Acts chapter 15, and, and the, they'd come together and they had determined that Gentiles were not under the law, not only in salvation, but they were not under the law even following their salvation, but that only that they would uh, keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from improperly bled meat, and also from uh, sexual immorality. This is very, very Im important to uh, realize because here is James and the leaders of the Jerusalem church making very, very clear to them and to us here this morning their understanding that neither Jews nor Gentiles are saved by the keeping of the law of Moses, and neither are they under it for living a holy life before God after they're saved. All of this has to do entirely, verse 21, with the customs of the Jews, with the heritage of the Jews and, and, and their customs. And these religious leaders, James and the elders, they were great with the salvation of the Gentiles independent of the law, and they didn't have the slightest interest in turning these Gentile believers into Jews once they became saved, communicating and an understanding on the part of both Paul and of James that Gentiles would not be forced to become Jews in becoming Christians, and the Jews would not have to abandon their spiritual heritage in becoming uh, Christians as well. Now, Paul hears all of this, and he agreed. And he agreed to do exactly what they proposed to him, and he did it. He sponsored the four men, and he was purified with them. Now, I have to pause here, and, and I ask you to stay with me because all of this lays a foundation for a very important application within our life and for us to understand why the application applies to us. It's very important to understand a couple of very critical things about this uh, passage here. First of all is to realize that the sacrifices associated uh, with the Nazarite vow had nothing to do with atonement with God, with at one with God, or what we would call salvation. Nothing associated with the Na Nazarite vow, including the sacrifices, in any way diminished Jesus' death on the cross as the soul-satisfying payment for the forgiveness 
of our sins. So when Paul agrees to make these sacrifices, he is not compromising in any way concerning Jesus and concerning Him as the sin offering. Second, it's important to realize concerning James' statement to Paul in verse 24 when James said that you yourself walk orderly and keep the law. There are some Bible students and scholars who uh, have interpreted what uh, uh, James is saying here as meaning that James believed in the necessity of keeping the law as a means of establishing our own righteousness before God, of having a right standing before God, as opposed to righteousness being put to our account on the basis of our simple trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And they look at it and they say that this is what James was asking Paul to do uh, to, and what he was looking for Paul to communicate in his uh, proposal, that Paul somehow believed that the keeping of the law of Moses was instrumental uh, to salvation. Now, to me, uh, looking at James in that way and, and to understand him to be proposing something like that is completely inconceivable, uh, that James would believe such a thing. James knew full well that salvation was based solely upon Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and that nothing could or should ever be added uh, to that. Again, in the letter that he wrote, the epistle according to James, uh, he declared in that epistle, in the opening verse of that letter, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others. He recognizes that salvation is based solely upon faith in our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second, it is inconceivable to me that Paul would ever agree to that kind of a proposition uh, under any circumstances, even under the threat of death. The idea that somebody could threaten Paul in some way to give a mixed message on how a person is saved and somehow confuse the issue and make people believe that salvation is somehow based upon trusting in Jesus and keeping the law of Moses, he just simply wouldn't do it. It, it, is, it isn't the Paul that is revealed to us in the Scriptures. If they held a knife to his throat, he would not say such a thing or to agree to it. And you remember, as we saw last week, when Paul came to Jerusalem, he, and they were trying to talk him out of it because imprisonment and body, body harm awaited him, he said, I'm willing to die for the Lord Jesus. There's no way he walks into that environment, gets intimidated, intimidated in caves on any level, uh, and certainly not on the level of salvation. 
Again, remember his letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the book of Galatians, his single great treatise on salvation, the book of Romans. They've already been written by Paul. They are already in circulation in the early church. And all of them unmistakably represent his view of salvation on the basis of faith alone and not by keeping the law or any law or any works. And it was a view that he never, ever moved away from. When I look at this charge against Paul, and I read all of the arguments that go on back and forth related to all of this, I think, boy, there would be one simple way to solve it, absolutely dogmatically to solve this controversy over whether Paul compromised in agreeing to uh, pay for everything that was involved in these Nazarite vows, and that would be if somehow Jesus himself chimed in concerning the issue and uh, cleared Paul as a result of it. And the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus, the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit provides for us in the Scriptures exactly what Jesus thought about what Paul did here in Jerusalem. In just a couple of chapters, we'll be in chapter 23, in verse 11 we're told that in a particular night the Lord Jesus stood by Paul and said to him, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. And it is all commendation, not a bit of condemnation from Jesus at all related to anything that Paul did in Jerusalem during this episode. Now, I want to close this morning with a simple but a very important application from all of this related to our own Christian lives. Because I think what we actually have here is something very, very precious. And I think it is an incredibly valuable uh, glimpse at the uh, heart of the Apostle Paul and even further than that, a, a vital revelation into his fruitfulness as a Christian and in his Christian service and his effectiveness for the kingdom of God. There was a principle that we see Paul operating here in, in Jerusalem that he operated under in his life and in his ministry, whether he was in the Gentile world or in the Jewish world. And he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. I'll read it to you. Paul wrote, autobiographical. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And the, to the Jews I have become a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And he said, now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. 
and what he was willing to do to reach the lost as he declares there in 1 Corinthians, he was, as we see in the passage before us this morning, he was also willing to do in order to be a unifying influence in the broad diversity of culture and personality that is represented in the body of Christ in this room and in this city and all around uh, the world. I become all things, he said, to all men. It is almost impossible to communicate how great the divide was that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles at this time. At this time in American history, there is nothing in our culture that we can point to and say it is like the animosity between this group and another group. The animosity between the Jews and the Gentiles was impossible uh, to encapsulate in terms of how strong it was in those days. They were polar opposites in every way that you could be opposites. But both Paul and James, and my respect for Paul on this issue is immense. But as I studied this passage again this week, and as I've looked at it elsewhere, and I look at James and that Jerusalem council and Acts chapter 15, my respect for James is immense as well. As I look at both of them, to their credit, I mean, they worked mightily uh, to, uh, to model uh, the saying that is Christian in origin, but would not be introduced into human history until almost 1,600 years later, one that most of us are familiar with in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. And here they model for us how to hold our own convictions concerning non-essentials in the Christian life, issues that are addressed biblically but in, on which Christians can differ, and how to hold on to our convictions concerning these things without breaking fellowship with other Christians, much less treating them as the enemy for holding a different position concerning these non-essentials. Some examples of this related to Christian culture uh, today has to do with our uh, differences sometimes in our understanding and our convictions concerning spiritual gifts within the body of Christ, uh, the timing of the rapture of the church, what day of the week that we worship on, uh, food that is offered to idols. In other words, the level of interaction that we feel comfortable having as individual Christians with the pagan culture all around us. When I travel as a pastor, and whether it's nationally or whether it's internationally, and, and I am speaking somewhere, I always elevate and honor their understanding of a non-essential above my own in the environment that I've been invited uh, to speak. If a suit and a tie is required in their culture to show proper respect to God when the saints assemble, I will happily wear a suit 
even if it's 120 degrees. If they have a stricter definition of modesty uh, than I have, and that definition of modesty extends to the fact that even the legs of men need to be covered within that culture, then I will happily wear long uh, pants and I will not wear shorts. If I were a woman going into these uh, assemblies of Christians and into these different uh, cultures, and, and it required the wearing of a dress or a head covering in, in order to enjoy undistracted fellowship uh, with these saints there, then I would readily do it. If they met on Saturday, as Christians do today, even in Israel, I'll be more than happy to make Saturday the day of my worship. When I'm choosing a Bible passage to teach, when I'm invited into places where I know they have a different view on some of these subjects than I hold or that Calvary Chapel uh, holds, I will make a point to stay away from those non-essentials that we may disagree on and instead focus upon an essential that we do all agree on and that we can enjoy together and we can celebrate God mutually uh, over. I remember an incident that happened years ago as I was pastoring here in, uh, in the early years of pastoring here in, in, in the city, and I was invited uh, to co-officiate a wedding and there was another pastor that was involved as a result of it. The bride and the groom, they attended the church, and they wanted me to officiate at the service. But there were family complications, and uh, the groom's family came from a, a denominational church in town, and it was very important to his father that uh, this couple be married in that uh, church environment and, um, and exchange their uh, their vows uh, uh, there, but the denomination would not recognize the marriage if uh, I led the bride and the groom in the exchange of their vows. So the bride and groom come to me, they're wringing their hands, they feel terrible about it, they're, they invited me to officiate and so forth, and they asked me if I'd be okay taking a different uh, role and a lesser role. And I said, absolutely, I'm, I'm here to serve uh, you. And because in the tradition of that church, it, it was much stricter than the Bible teaches in uh, this regard, but it was a non-essential, I was very happy to defer and while still maintaining my own convictions concerning the issue uh, through all of it. And it was a great day, it was great for the family, it was great for uh, the bride and the groom. I love the statement in this regard from a very famous English preacher of the last century. He was known as the uh, Prince of Preachers or, of, or as, of Expositors, and his name was G. Campbell Morgan. And he wrote, I have noticed that the more spiritual a man becomes, the less denominational he becomes. I have found that the more spiritual a man becomes, the less denominational he becomes. And I agree with that 100%. And it certainly has been uh, something that encapsulates perfectly my own journey uh, related to this kind of issues within the body of Christ. 
denominations and non-denominations are often built around uh, distinctions that are non-essential. There's nothing wrong with having distinctions. All of that is perfectly fine. I don't want to be misunderstood in that regard. Distinctions and distinctives are necessary, and we should hold our biblical convictions and our perspectives very firmly, absolutely hold to them, but never break fellowship with other Christians over them. And that's the trick for us as Christians, and that's something that we need to learn. Hold our convictions, hold them firmly, be firmly convinced of them, and not be threatened in any way to, in, in, to enter into another Christian environment at, that, I have to, that I'm going to be swayed by them or I have to fix them in order for me to be comfortable in that environment and to be a blessing in that in environment. My biblical convictions are stronger than they have ever been in my life concerning both essentials and non-essentials. I am secure in them. They are unshakable in my life. They provide me with a foundation that allows me to navigate the nuttiness of this world and to navigate the nuttiness of His call upon my life. And yet concerning non-essentials, my willingness to set them aside for the sake of unity and for the sake of fellowship with other Christians, that has never been stronger in my life as well. When we look at this passage of Scripture, it is important to realize that clearly God was pleased to bless both groups, both the largely Jewish church in Jerusalem under James and the elder and to equally bless the largely Gentile church under the oversight of the Apostle Paul, and to do so despite all of their cultural differences. He didn't feel a need to take a side in all of it. Now, we know that historically, as things move on in church history, that it would be the Jewish church, so to speak, that would ultimately need to kind of grow out and move away from uh, the strictness of many of their views and many of their practices. But God would have to do that. And when Paul is in this environment, more than anyone, he realized that. And he was willing to come into that environment, leave that with God, but enjoy fellowship with them on a level uh, as deeply as he possibly could. And all of this grace toward and appreciation for uh, the body of Christ and all of its diversity is not merely modeled by James and by Paul, but it is modeled by nothing other than Jesus himself. Jesus in, is, is recorded in Luke chapter 9. He's with the apostles, the disciples. And John, speaking on behalf of the rest of the apostles, comes up to Jesus and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but we forbade him because, and here's the reason, he does not follow with us. 
And I don't know if John was expecting a pat on the head or some kind of an award or something. I suspect he was. It's kind of a, uh, this is a badge of our loyalty to you, Jesus. But he misread Jesus entirely on this issue. And Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. And how much division occurs within the body of Christ over that he is not one of us. And Jesus responds, in essence, don't pick fights with those who are on our side just because they belong to a different group or they do things in a different way. And it is such a needed reminder because our natural tendency in the flesh, even as Christians, is away from what we see in Paul and James and in uh, Jesus here and to divide and to fight over the most ridiculous things. It is, a, it is a blight, it is a plague upon the body of Christ and upon Christians, certainly in our country. I can't speak authoritatively for other places. But how willing we are to fight other Christians at the drop of a hat over nothing and then to divide from them and to consider ourselves to be morally superior to them as a result, and then to even go so far as to say, I'm not comfortable assembling with them, or I won't have anything to do with them. And it's epidemic, and it's an awful black eye upon the body of Christ, and it reflects very, very poorly upon Jesus himself. And so it's an important message. Let's have our convictions in terms of non-essentials. The essentials, they don't move. But in terms of the non-essentials, to hold those convictions, but not to make them a litmus test for the spirituality of others or to hold back our fellowship and the blessing that we might be to others by coming into contact with them in fellowship and to introduce something from the outside into their group and then to also learn and to receive from them as they might bring something from the outside into our group and into our own individual lives. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, you've heard the sermon and you've, you know what you've done with it in each of our hearts here this morning. And I am and we are just so humbled by the pains that Paul and James went through in order, Lord, to find common ground for fellowship in a very, very complicated situation. And Father, we pray for our own individual lives and for us as a church that you would put that same mantle upon us, Lord, that we would hold our convictions and hold them firmly 
and not to be budged from them, but never to take our convictions concerning non-essentials and to have them lead to a place where we judge other Christians in a poor light or withhold our fellowship from them or reject their fellowship with us. And you see how deeply rooted this tendency is within us. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to uproot it as we continue to walk with you and to make each and every one of us, by name, Lord, here this morning, a wonderful influence for edification and for love, Lord, and fellowship in every Christian environment we find ourselves in. Help us, Lord, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.